Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Let's give it up to our fathers. Um, my three-year-old, she sang happy birthday to me because she just, she saw them giving me gifts and she's like, happy birthday, daddy. I'm like, it's not, but thanks. Thank you for the socks. Amen. So, um, hey, if you are a father here, I wonder if you'd stand up. We have our, uh, give it up for our fathers. (laughs) If, If this is... No, stay, stay standing, stay standing. If this is your first time here, you can see this is a very sing, single church. It's like all three of our fathers. Um, but anyway, amen. But uh, for the fathers in the house, we have a $5 gift card from Dunkin' Donuts. All right, all right. May those donuts be with you for now and forevermore. Okay, so the Connect team might have come around uh, here they come. Here they come. Yes. Yes. Okay. Did you get one? Everybody got one except Russell. Russell doesn't get one. All right. All right. Well, listen, we are, um, we are going into the second chapter of the book of Ruth. We've been talking about how Ruth's life essentially got rewritten by God. When God is in your life, he takes the story of her life and he writes it how he wants and you must give him the authority to write the story of her life. In the first chapter, we looked at this gentleman named Elimelech. We looked at the decisions that he made. And then later on in that chapter, we looked at Naomi and Ruth and some of the tragedy that they went through. Naomi has been through some hard things. We, we know that she went into a famine into, uh, after being in uh, Bethlehem where there was a famine. She had to work through that with her family. And then she goes over to Moab. Once going into Moab, she is essentially an immigrant, having to understand the culture there. Then there was the death of her husband. She has to grieve that. Then there's barrenness of her daughters-in-law for 10 years, both her daughters-in-law. She has to grieve that. Then her sons die, Mahlon and Chilion. She grieves that. And finally, the departure of Orpah, her daughter-in-law. And it says in the first chapter, they wail, they cry when she leaves. One blow after another is in Naomi's life. One tragedy after another happens in Naomi's life. And Naomi gets to the point in Ruth chapter one, verses 20 through 21, where her name means pleasant. And when she eventually came back to Bethlehem, Her girls see her and they're like, hey, Naomi. Because oftentimes your name would be indicative of your character or your countenance. But she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. Verse 21, I went away full, meaning I went away with a family. I went to Moab with a family and I came back. Now I have nothing. But the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi? And look at what she says. Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. You see what she says there? Based upon God's recent track record in my life, where it seems like one thing is happening after another against me, I believe now God is in opposition to my life. We are in a tension. We are in a hard place. And we said that essentially this is what happens when you're grieving. You go into this stage where you want to isolate and be alone. And we said that in one of the chapters of your life, you will be struck with grief or you will be placed beside the grieving. And we encourage you to be like Ruth, to press into relationship, to be a friend to those that are grieving. And we warned you that Naomi, that as she said, she's Mara, as she said, she's bitter. We warned you against the dangers of bitterness. Bruce Hebel says, bitterness is to a heart wound what an infection is to a flesh wound, meaning it, it spreads and it begins to corrode everything. And once you become having a bitter spirit because life didn't work the way you thought, you become cynical towards everything. You become that person who always sees the hard thing that could happen and you lose your hope and you become a hard person. And you've been around those people. They're hard because life has been hard to them and they don't seem like they have any hope and they're cynical. And the thing that is so amazing that's happening here is that in the midst of all of this, in the very next chapter, we see God is plotting. He's got a story he's working out. When you're bitter, your head is down, only looking at your tragedy, your pain, your heartache. But when you look up and you begin to think not only of your circumstance, but also of God's sovereignty, of who God is, then you begin to have trust and hope God is going to work this out for his glory and my good. And it was through her bitterness that she, Naomi, was not able to see, was not able to look up. Before we get into chapter two, it is worth noting that this chapter really deals with the heart of God's providence. Now, when I say God's providence, essentially what I'm talking about is God's governance. It is the fact that God loves, cares, and directs all things in the universe. He is sovereign over the physical world, but he's also sovereign over all nations, all people, all leaders, human destiny and human success, human failure, human death, all within the hand of God. Nothing gets past God. There's nothing he hasn't seen. Every star that is aligned has been aligned by God. Every galaxy that you've not even thought of has been placed there by God. Every heartbeat has been ordained by God. Every breath that you have has been sovereignly placed there by God in your lungs. God is in control. That is what God's providence means. And this doctrine, it stands at the very opposition of this concept called fate, i.e. it just so happened, this concept of chance, that hopefully something may happen. Our hope, our Christian hope is different than a temporal hope. We don't hope like, ah, I hope it works out. We have a concrete hope, knowing that our Lord and our Savior one day will come back to this earth and he will change everything and he will rule and he will reign. We have a solid and a sure hope in that we have this tension because the Proverbs say that the tension of God's providence is in Proverbs 16 and 9. A person, look what it says, a person's heart 
plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. So this is what the text is telling us. You have a plan for your life, right? You have a thought for what the next season of your life is going to be. You have dreams, you have hopes, you have expectations. You've made some kind of plan. Even if you're the type of person like, I don't make plans, you got some kind of plan. You got something you want to see. And what it's telling us is that although you have a plan, ultimately, God will determine the steps. He is the one that will make sure. He is the overarching, sovereign person who will ensure what you want. Or he may not allow what you want. Man makes a plan, but God determines the steps. God is the one that makes sure all things happen. And we love it when our plan lines up with God's plan. Amen. He's good, isn't he? Yeah, man, a man made a plan. God got a plan. Our plan synced up. God's good. But when our plan doesn't sync up with God's plan, that's the tension of sovereignty, of providence. Now, when I say providence, understand there is a heartbeat behind that. The word providence, the word pro means to go before. Vide, it essentially means to see. It means to see before. But, it, you know, it, it's not like just saying, I see that but it is to see to something. So if someone were to go to a mayor and say, hey mayor, we have a problem with potholes in our town. And he says, I'll see to that. He is not saying, I'll go look at the pothole and think about it. He's saying, I will make sure that this pothole is not here anymore because I will use my governmental power to make sure that this is taken care of. I just don't see it, I, I'll see to it. And when the Bible is saying God is providential, it essentially tells us that God does not just see after us. He doesn't just see us, rather. He sees after us. He's ensuring that we are cared for. Now, the incredible thing that happens here in this text is you're going to see in one chapter, it seems like God's not even there. Next chapter, God is overflowing. Look here in chapter 2 of verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2 and, and verse 1 of Ruth. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. So interesting. And he was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Now, rabbinical teaching would tell us that Boaz was most likely the nephew of Elimelech. But we're not totally certain of that. What we know, though, is what it says in the text is he was a prominent man. All right? What it's essentially saying is Boaz was rich. We learn that from the rest of the chapter. Boaz had money. He had fields. And, and we'll see later when he greets his workers, he says, the Lord be with you. He's a man of God. He's not a man of God just on when in the temple. He's a man of God at work. There's a whole sermon I could do on that right now. But it's different, it's different when God is the God of your Sunday, but is the God of your Monday. You know what I mean? Like, is he your God at work? Hallelujah. But this is not the point I'm trying to get at. But he's a prominent man, listen, of noble character. So all of a sudden we see that this is a good guy with a lot of riches. He could take care of people. And then it also says he's in the Limelech's family. And essentially what it's going to, it's, it's previewing this idea 
that because he is connected to Elimelech, he could at some point be married to Naomi. He could be her redeemer. And we'll talk about that in the next chapter. But what's funny is in Ruth chapter one, verse eight, as Naomi is getting ready to go back to Bethlehem and Ruth and Orpah are wanting to go back with her, she tells the ladies, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I, what she says is, am I able to have my son and any more sons who could become your husbands? So what she is essentially saying is, don't follow me back to Bethlehem because I know what you want. You want a husband. And if you follow me, you'll never find a husband there in Bethlehem. There's no one there for you. Everyone I've known has died. All the men I know have died. There's no way that you should follow me over there. Your life will be in destitute poverty if you follow me. And then after this chapter, in chapter two, verse one, immediately we're introduced to Boaz. And Boaz is the very person that Naomi said didn't exist. What's crazy about this text, and again, I can't, I, I gotta move. I see the timer, praise God. But here's the reality. In one chapter, Naomi says, you will never be married. There's no chance if you follow me. In the next chapter, in the very first verse, we see the man she would marry. What that tells us is that within a verse, everything changes. And I just want you to know, right now, there are things that you are burdened about, worried about, frustrated about. Within this very day, God could radically transform your life like he did one verse to the next. God is a God that is in control. That means he does what he wants when he wants. The very thing Naomi said doesn't exist happens to exist the next verse. God is in control. So we see in Ruth 2 and 2, Ruth, the Moabites, uh, Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Now, understand that what she is asking, essentially, Naomi most likely told her about. This is within Israel, you have in this community a system set up so that people would not always live in poverty. Their belief was not connected solely to the idea that if you are in poverty, you have poor character. The idea is there's all types of reasons you could be in poverty. You could be an alien, a stranger. You could be a widow. You could be an orphan. So they set up a system to ensure that those that would find themselves in poverty would have a way to eat. And so what this was called was the law of the gleanings. And if you were to look in Leviticus 19, I'll read it for you. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Verse 10, do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. So you have the reapers, i.e. the harvesters, and they would be taking from all of their fields. These are small fields, not very big. And they would have to trust God for the very food that they had. But they would have to leave an edge because God wanted to create this system. So you have these reapers or harvesters, and these essentially were the bottom level workers. They were free Israelites, and oftentimes they would be the ones that would be there at the bottom of the barrel economically, but there to take care um, 
of those grains. Now what Naomi is allowing Ruth to go do is glean. So after, after those harvesters and reapers would go, there would be the gleaners and they would essentially get the leftovers, the scraps that were there. What was left was for the gleaners. And this was essentially, this, these gleaners were the poor. They were people that would come just to get a little bit of food. And you have to understand that this moment, we, we kind of see this moment and we want to make it like a movie, but we've got to first see that when people are in poverty and they're kind of locked into one another, now they're fighting each other. So the gleaners often would be fighting one another and pushing and shoving. And there is Ruth trying to get the little bit of scraps. And she was an unattached woman. She had no father. She had no husband. So she was easily subject to victimization out there. She was taking a huge risk by going out and gleaning. Oftentimes when you think of this, think of a, a Panera. If you go in there and you look and there's someone digging in the dumpster at the food we don't want, that's what gleaning was. It was digging around for food to, just to make it. That's what Ruth is doing. And it says, Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, whom, who was of, from Elimelech's family. So it repeats this idea, it said in verse one. Verse four, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. And in verse five, it says, Boaz asked his servant, whom was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? Verse six, the servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. And she asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? And she came and has been on her feet since earlier, more early in the morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. All right. So see the movie scene. All right. Boaz wakes up, you know, and he's like, I'm just going to go check out my fields because, you know, I got a bunch of fields because I'm popping. My bank account is all that, you know, so I'm going to go see my fields. And now Naomi is out there, you know, and she's out there trying to glean and get food and do all that she's doing. And, and all of a sudden, Boaz notices her. And what we want to do when you look there in verse 5 it says, Boaz asked his servant, this is basically the foreman over all his fields. Boaz asked his servant in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? And, you know, growing up and every time I read this, I've always read this like, who is shorty over there? She's so bad over there gleaning and whatnot. And what, what we want to do, right, we want to romanticize this. So this is this moment where Jodeci comes in the background, right? It's like, oh, my life. Pray for someone gleaning like you, right? And so we want, and they lock eyes, and he's like, you know, guys, when they see a girl they like, they don't do this. They go, they go like this, or they wave their fingers like, hey, girl. You know what I mean? That's what we want to turn this moment into. I want to encourage you. There's really nothing romantic about this moment. Okay. Now, marriages at that time were much more strategic than they were romantic. 
if you had an opportunity for your family to forge political or social standing and a strengthening your standing in the community, you would have an arranged marriage with another family of wealth. This woman is not just poor, she's a foreigner. There's nothing about her that would be attractive to him. And, and to be quite honest with you, when the Bible thinks someone's attractive, it tells us. I'm not saying Ruth wasn't bad. She might have been fine. I'm just saying the Bible didn't tell us that. So there's nothing that we know physically about her. There's nothing romantic in this moment. The reality is there's another reason why many scholars say she stood out. Oh, and, and one last thing. The other thing is she's barren. So not only is she poor, foreign, widower, but she's been barren. A man would not only want to marry a woman of wealth or at least of similar standing, but they'd also want to make sure that their line would continue. So there's nothing that he would most likely want from her from that regard. But in, in verse 7, it says that she asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? And essentially what many scholars would say is that she's not just asking to glean, she's asking to work right with the harvesters meaning that she doesn't want to be with those who are getting leftovers. She wants to be with the workers so that she can get more. She could be in the first line of the people reaping and harvesting. And they are probably surprised by that. When he walks in, he notices who is this different woman harvesting. That's what stood out about her. She was courageous because she desperately wanted to take care of Naomi. It really wasn't her body, and it wasn't romance, it was her character that made her stand out. It was her character that was selfless, that wanted to take care of someone else. That's what made her stand out. And Boaz notices her. He is intrigued by her. Boaz gets, you know, a little intel on her, essentially. And then in verse eight, Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, do, don't go and gather grain in another field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go drink from the jars the young men have filled. So immediately there, when he says, notice, he says, I've ordered the men not to touch you. You see the victimization that was most likely happening to those that are poor. He's having to essentially create a, 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 a sex, making sure there's no sexual harassment in his work environment for her. And this was most likely a culture that he had to break. Goes on to say, verse 10, see, she, she fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you? So that you notice me, although I am a foreigner. Why are you even paying attention to me? In verse 11, Boaz answered her. Look what he says. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you, then he goes into detail, how you left your father and mother and your native land, how you came to a people you didn't previously know. 
And then he says, verse 12, may the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And what Boaz is not motivated by some sudden infatuation, Boaz is blown away by her character and he's gotten all this intel on her. He says, look, I've seen how you care for your your mother-in-law. I've seen how you left your native land. And here's the other thing. I see that you're seeking God. Above all the good things that you're doing, I believe that your life is not just about helping people around me. That's good, and I'm blown away by that. But I believe, look what he says, it's under the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. You weren't just looking for a Boaz, you were looking for a God. That's who you want to protect you. That's who you want to provide for you. And I noticed that about you. And I want to bless you. That's what's happening here. This is not some spiritual tinder that's happening here. This is a woman who essentially wants to seek and care for her family so that they're not poor. And this is a man that's just like, man, I am blown away by a woman of God. And he's blown away by the God and the woman, by her love for God and by her care for her mother-in-law. Some would even say that it is not just the fact that he notices her. But we've also got to remember who Boaz's mom is. Historians would know that Boaz's mom was a woman named Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner. You think Boaz says to himself, I remember that. I remember when mom had nothing. When she had to sell her body for everything. I remember mom. I remember mom had to pick up scraps. And I remember my mom was a woman of great character. You remind me of her. I I, I remember that. I know what it's like to have nothing. And I believe God has given me everything and I want to bless you. That, That is the beauty of just how God, and you know what it said earlier? You know what it said earlier? That Ruth just so happened to be in Boaz's field. The author is making a play on words. It didn't just so happen God placed her there. And the same God that seemingly was taking away everything from Naomi and Ruth, he took away family, he took away food, he took away friends, he took away everything. And the next chapter is giving everything. He's giving friendships, he's giving sustenance because we have to understand what Job said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's maturity. When you know God will give. Yes, I love when God gives. We praise you for giving. We praise you for giving. But can you bless him when he takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of God. He gives and takes away and is good in the taking and is good in the giving. His giving doesn't define his goodness. His taking doesn't mean he's uh, abandoning you. It means he's good nonetheless because his plan is greater than our plan. His way is greater than our way. If he takes it, it's because he's good. If God wanted you to have it, you'd have it right now. God's mercy, God's mercy is often seen in the absence of what we don't have, not in the fulfillment of it. God is merciful to us. If God wanted you to have it, you'd have it. And if God wants to take it, 
If God wants to take all that we have, this earth is not the fulfillment of our life. Our lives are going to be caught up in glory. And so if he wants to take, blessed be the name of the Lord. If he wants to give, blessed be the name of the Lord. God is good. Amen? Well, in verse 13, he says, my Lord, she says, um, my Lord, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant. Although I am not like one of your female servants. She's saying, I'm a foreigner. You don't even know me. And again, we, we talked about before how Moabites were the last people to even interact. In Deuteronomy, it says to not even interact with Moabites. And she knows this. So in verse 14, at, at mealtime, it says, Boaz told her, come over here and come and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Oh, now she's got more food. Now she's eating with other people. She didn't think, do you understand? She went there just to get the scraps. Now she's having golden corral. She's got leftovers. Do you, understand? Do you see that? She has leftovers. She thought she wouldn't eat that day. She has leftovers. When she got up, verse 15, to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles. Don't humiliate. In other words, move her up with the harvesters. Make sure that, you know, she, even though she was there before, continue to bless her. Pull out what it says, verse 16, pull out some stalks from the bundles for her. Leave them for her to gather. So leave more food for her. Don't rebuke her. Verse 17. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered. And it was about 26 quarts of barley. Verse 18. She picked up the grain, went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. This woman got about two weeks worth of food. This is like a Costco run on 12, you know what I'm saying? And she's got all this food she's got, and she's got food left over from her meal. Do you know what this is called? Abundance. She has an abundance. She, didn't, she doesn't have enough to eat. She has so much to eat. Y'all, they ain't got refrigerators at this time. I don't know what they're going to do with all this food. There's no way to preserve all this food. God changed everything one chapter to the next. And God was good in both chapters. Now, far be it from me, do I want my wife gone? That would test my faith. That would flatten me. But God exposed the life of Naomi, the bitterness of Naomi. The same Naomi says, don't follow me, girl. Don't, don't you come over here to Bethlehem because nothing is going to work out for you. And one verse later, boom, it's all working out. That's why you got to be careful about being around cynical people. So you got to be very careful about the friends you choose. That if you do not connect yourself, attach yourself to people of faith, 
they will keep those that don't know God or those who may know God, but they don't operate with God. They keep their heads down and always talk about circumstances and problems. They don't, you got a friend that arches your head up to see God and to see what God can do and see what, who God is. And when you are in your deepest, darkest moment, you need a friend to say, and God is still good. It is in that. Our doubts and our fears and our worries, they get exposed when God takes. Jesus would jump into this idea in Matthew 6, verse 31. He says, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? He says, God says, I hear you. I see you worried. I see you thinking what's going to happen next. I see you overwhelmed and anxious about the next season of your life, about the next day of your life. I know you're in a chapter one reality where everything seems like it's failing. Nothing seems like it's working. Like the network you thought you would have, it's not working out. The friendships you thought you have, they're not working the way you thought. I know, I hear you. And he quotes us. What shall I wear? What shall I eat? And then he says... Verse 32, the pagans, they run after all these things. And when he says the pagans, he's not saying people who didn't have a God. These people had many gods. And if they wanted to have a more fertile life, they would worship the fertility God. If they wanted more crops, they would worship the crop God. If they wanted more strength, they would worship the God of strength. They would always switch out gods, trying to get their attention. They would sacrifice to those gods, saying, ooh, ooh, look at me, look at me. Do you notice me? Do you notice me? That's why it says they run around trying to be noticed by an idol that would some way take care of them. But then he says, your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows. And he says, seek the kingdom. Don't worry. He knows. Oh, wait a minute. So you know? You, you know what I think about at night and that inner monologue that I have, the doubts that I have, you know? He knows you're single. He knows that the person that you think has no business being married, got married, right? It was like, I was cool, but then Keisha got married and I was like, I know God doesn't love me, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? He knows. I remember when, many of you don't know this, but we did not want I did not want to be 42. Like, Rasul and I are basically the same age. His daughter is in college. My daughter is drinking milk and waking me up at 2 a.m. This was not my plan. I didn't want to have a three-year-old at 42 years old. The reason why that is is because we, had to, we tried to have a kid for seven, eight years. We couldn't have kids. Miscarriage after miscarriage. The weirdest thing is for someone to pray for you so that you wouldn't miscarry again, and then they have a baby. That's an interesting feeling. And it feels like God saw them and saw 
me and overlooked me. And the same God that allowed barrenness in our life is the same God that allowed us to have three kids. And God would have still been good if we were still barren. We miscarried twins. He was still good. Second year in marriage, there was a song by a woman named Martha Manuzzi, and it was, um, when you don't know what else to say, say the name of Jesus. And we were in a worship service. We had $10 in the account. And I remember just thinking like, is this what this song means? Like, cause I don't know what else to say. Like you, we, we all see our bank account, Jesus. At the time I was raising support to go to seminary. I just didn't know what else to say. And so I just said the name of Jesus. You see, I, and I could tell you that God provided, he did. But God, it's okay for us to read chapter one some of you are in a chapter one moment where God is stripping you of everything. And you're just, it's almost like you can't breathe everything. And you can't let yourself become bitter. You've got to look up and know everything can change. God is in control of everything. And he knows. And he cares. My next slide cut off on my notes. Bring the next slide up. Yeah, thank you, praise God. Could we, would you stand with me? We're gonna read this together on three. We're gonna start with if, okay? All right? Enthusiasm, amen. On three. One, two, three. God shows up, doesn't he? If he perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. Where he patrols, he controls. God shows up. God is not watching you. God is caring for you. God shows up. And you might feel there is space right now between you and God and you think God is like, like what Naomi said, God is opposing me. You may feel God is opposing you. You may feel the circumstances of your life are, are now changing the way you see God. I pray right now. I pray for maturity to be in your life. I pray you become more mature. God has allowed this trial to mature you and to bring glory of him through your life. 
It is not meant to destroy you. It is meant for you to love God more. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Bless him. Bless him when he takes. Bless him when you are wondering where things are going to work out. Bless him. Oh, but bless him when he gives. Bless him with that gratitude overflowing. When you have leftovers, bless him. Bless him. Because if he gives or he takes, he's good. Amen. God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. And circumstances do not define the goodness of my God. He's too good to be defined by one year. The one thing I want, he's too good. Father, we love you. We pray right now, Lord, that you would remind us that you see us and know us. We bless your name, God. We bless your name, God. We bless your name. You're good when you give and you're good when you take. Bless your name, God. Bless your name, God. You see me right now. Bless your name, God. You know I've been hurting. Bless your name, God. You know I have doubts. Bless your name, God. God, you've given me more than I could imagine. Bless your name, God. God, you are my father. Bless your name, God. God, you know my wants and my doubts, my fears and my hurts. Bless your name, for you are good. Your mercy endures forever. You're good. You don't owe me anything, God. You've given me everything. For every heart beat that I have, oh God, I'm stewarding that. You gave me that. For every breath that I breathe, you gave me that, God. I don't, you don't owe me, God. You're good. So tonight, let us rest because you are a God of providence. You're a God that's good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're now going to have a time of communion. If we could have the communion come. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.